The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 1, 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray, and we'll get right into our passage for this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace that indeed we are enriched in every way, and one of your greatest gifts to us is your word. And this, for the next uh, segment of time, we, we turn our ears to hear from you. We want to hear not just how to be a, a more loving person or how to be uh, a better person in general. We want to hear how you have loved us. We want to know how deep your love for us is. And so would you communicate to that to us this morning? Would you unstop our ears? Would you break down the barriers in our heart? And would you allow us to grab on to the word of the gospel this morning and take it to heart? Would you help me to step out of the way? Lord, would it be all of you and none of me this morning? So that we can hear from you in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are... In the middle of a sermon series, um, going through the book of First Peter, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible here at Sacred City Church, and today we are hitting the 20% completed mark as we wrap up chapter one in our sermon series, Life in Exile. And through this chapter, what Peter has been doing so far is basically unpacking some of the major themes that will resurface throughout the remainder of this letter. And so if you're just joining us, or, well, for many of you, you've been in and out. We've had lots of stuff. This is like the first Sunday where I feel like there's a little bit of normalcy here to our, our congregation because with people going back to school and family vacations, right, it's time for us to sort of refresh and, and refocus here on what Peter is saying as he's writing to his original audience. Now, his original audience, if you would remember, they, these are people who are in, in, in exile, now, this isn't a physical exile where they're displaced physically from their hometown, but this is an exile where spiritually they are out of place, that culturally they don't fit in. Now, because of their faith, because they're living all in for Jesus, they no longer fit in with the surrounding culture. Now, socially and culturally, they're rejected, they're maligned, they're facing prejudice, they're being slandered, they're being mocked, and they're being silenced. These people are considered misfits because what they're doing is they're rejecting their former way of living, what, what Peter identifies as their former ignorance, and what they're doing is they're living lives shaped by the gospel. Now, that's what happens. When you live a life that's shaped by the gospel, you will face resistance. People will look at you and say, you're being weird. Right? Culture will say, you don't fit in with us. Stop being like that. Why don't you be like you used to be? And when facing these situations, Christians have predominantly done one, or two, one of two things. They've either, one, given into the powerful pull of peer pressure, that's the tongue pressure, powerful pull of peer pressure, to conform to the flow and, and, and the desires of culture, right? So this idea of living all in for Jesus now becomes living like halfway in, pseudo in for Jesus. I, I live all in for Jesus in theory, but really my allegiances are torn by the pull of culture. And we see this, unfortunately, in a lot of mainstream denominations, that there are a lot of churches, not only in our city, but across our country, that are conforming to the cultural patterns of society. They're compromising the distinctives of Orthodox Christianity just to, to appeal to, to culture at large. And because of that, Christian, Christians lose their distinctiveness. The church loses its distinctiveness as God's people, which is no good. Now the second option is equally as no good, and that is to, to sort of hermit up Right? When we feel this pull from the culture, we sort of close our doors. We separate ourselves from the culture. We create enclaves 
to protect ourselves from culture so that we can faithfully live in our gospel identity. But here's the problem with that is that Jesus called us Christians, his people, to be salt and light in a dark and tasteless world. And so if we do that, if we try to preserve our identity by hermiting it up, we no longer are a faithful witness in our culture. Now if you evaluate the cultural climate that we are in, you will see some similarities here especially as the era of Christendom comes to an end. Now, that's, the era of Christendom is this idea where, where Christian values are, are kept by all. And if you look out across our nation, even in our city, you can see that we are forsaking, in a sense, if we ever really were a Christian nation, these Christian values and moving toward secular ideologies. And so in this context, to live all in for Jesus, which is the way that every Christian ought to live, is alienating for us. We realize we just don't really fit in. And actually, that's a good litmus test to see if you are actually living all in for Jesus. Because if you're living all in for Jesus, there are gonna be relationships, there's gonna be situations where you feel ostracized, where you feel like you're being silenced. Because the person that you're talking to or interacting with doesn't want to hear what you have to say. And so we either feel this pressure to conform to the rest of culture or to remain silent, which I think is maybe the the most predominant uh, uh, sway that, that the Christian church is experiencing right now. It's like you can keep your beliefs as long as you keep silent about it. We do this in order to preserve relationships, to preserve our our reputation, how people view us in the culture. And so in a sense, we kind of have the same options. One, we either fold on our faith, we compromise our faith, we sort of make adaptations to fit in a little bit better, or two, we hermit up and we move deeper into isolation. That seems to be our two options. But what Peter is communicating to us through this letter is that there's a third option. There's a third option for Christians to live faithfully in line with biblically orthodox faith and to meaningfully engage with the culture. Now this third way is more difficult, definitely. It's far more difficult. It requires us to live in the tension between two kingdoms, right? There's these two competing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, that will one day fade away. And there's the kingdom of God which will last forever. And we are stuck in this tension of living sort of between these two kingdoms. And what this does, it stretches us beyond our ability, right? It's hard work, it's exhausting. So this third way is for us to live all in for Jesus, to make no compromises for our faith while still engaging in meaningful ways with the, co- the, the culture. And so far, to kind of instruct us in what this looks like, Peter has laid out three big things in this first chapter for us to sort of grab onto. That if we want to live as Christians in a hostile culture, this is what we need to Remember, one is to set your hope fully on God, right? We do this through sober-mindedness, right? Gospel fluency, that, that everything that we see, the way, the way that we see the world is viewed through the grace of Jesus in past, present, and future tenses. So that's the first one, that we set our hope fully on God, not on this world, not on politics, not on, on our humanitarian efforts, not on anything, not on, not on the thriving of families, nothing like that, that our hope is fully on Jesus. The second thing is that, that we are to be holy. That if we wanna be faithful in this context, that we must live like we've been called. God tells us, Peter actually calls us to live holy lives. Now, what this requires is to live in the identity that you've already been given by God, but it also requires us to forsake our former ways of ignorance, the futile ways of our forefathers, is how he framed it up in last week's passage. 
And the third thing that we ought to do is to live in fear. Now this, to live in fear kind of sounds scary, right? Because the word fear is in it. But this idea of fear, how, how Peter frames it up, is to live a life on mission knowing that God is both father and judge. Right? That if we have friends and family that are not yet Christians, that one day they'll stand before the, the throne of, of God and have to give an account for their life. And, and the best, if they are not Christians, the best they can do is try to heap up their good deeds to outweigh their, their failures, their sin. And it will never work. But, if they turn to Christ and claim Christ's blood on themselves, that he has cleansed me, he has forgiven me of my sin, he has made me righteous, they have been justified. They've been ransomed from these futile ways. And so we, we set our hope fully on God. We live holy lives on mission, right? These are the three things. But even to do those three things, Peter has, has laid out that we have to Keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? To do these things requires us to be anchored in the gospel. And that requires us to own the reality of verses 1 through 12 and 18 through 21. Right? We talked about the indicatives, what God has done that inform the imperatives, how we respond. Right? And so in order to live like that, we must go back to the indicatives, what God has done, that God has ransomed us through the blood of Christ. That's the only way that you can remain a Christian in this culture is to keep your eyes fixed on the gospel. And that gospel is this, that is mercy. God's mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope that will bring us to a full salvation. And knowing this, we as God's people have faith and hope that is in God. That is the, that is the, uh, the essence of a Christian worldview that our hope and our faith are in God and nothing else, entirely and exclusively on God, right? So today, what we're gonna see, that's kind of where we've been. Now today, what we're gonna see is the gospel not only changes how we see the world around us, but it also changes our interactions and how we view Christian community. Now Peter is going to unpack an idea here for us that is absolutely revolutionary for Christian community. Even just as much today as it was when he first presented this idea. And it boils down to one key characteristic. One mark, one distinctive, one thing that Christians should be known for above all other things. Now as a church, as God's people, there are a lot of things that we ought to be known for. We should be known for people who gather together worship and worship, who live our lives together, for our robust biblical theology, for our extravagant generosity, for our compassion, for our authenticity, for the love of kids and unborn babies, to be fighters for social and racial justice to care for the disenfranchised, but above all of these things, listen, and those things are good things that I hope by God's grace we as Sacred City Church would embody from this point forward into eternity. But above all those good things, what we would embody is love. Love is the absolute most important marker for the Christian church. And it's not not only our love for others that are outside of our walls, we ought to, especially in light of last week, to conduct ourselves with fear, to live holy lives on mission. We ought to love the people outside of our walls, but especially for fellow Christians, for our brothers and sisters in the faith. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 he speaks of this precisely. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you've probably heard it a lot, read at weddings, right? This is like the love passage. But, but the context of what Paul is talking about when he's, when he's writing to the Corinthians is he's talking about brotherly love. The love that a church member has for another church member, that a Christian has for another church member, or another Christian. This is what he says. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. And he goes on to say, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. See, without love, the church is nothing. Without love, the church is nothing more than empty idealism. Without real flesh and blood love, the church cannot survive. And so this key distinctive is that the church, God's people, would be a loving people. Now when we talk about love, there is a broad spectrum here that comes to mind, right? There's a lot of different definitions for love, right? When Peter and Paul are calling the church to love one another, I'm wondering, is this the kind of love that I have for a brother or sister, the same kind of love that I love the Oakland Raiders? Probably not. Is this the same kind of love that I have for tacos? Doubtful. Although, you know, maybe. Is this the same kind of love that a spouse should have for their spouse or for their children? How exactly are we to love one another? And honestly, when our definition of love is fuzzy, it gets really hard to evaluate ourselves on how well we're doing at love. Because we all think, right? We all think that I'm actually a pretty decent lover, right? Not you know, in a platonic state, romantics, whatever. We all think that I'm pretty good at loving people. But when we have a solid definition, right, when Peter gives us this standard that is radical to what, what other what culture says love is, it can be awfully convicting. And so in today's passage, Peter is gonna fill us in on what that standard is. He's going to show us what it looks like for the church to love one another, what it looks like for you to love the people in your MC. And so if you want to open your Bible with me, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible by your feet underneath the chairs. Uh, we're opening up to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's towards the back of your Bible, almost at the end of the New Testament. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And before we get there, I want to warn you while you're flipping there. If you read this verse in isolation, it's going to seem like there's going to be a lot riding on your own shoulders, right? If you just read this one passage out of what Peter has said so far, it's going to seem like you have a lot to do with your own salvation, right? That it has something to do with you sort of positioning yourself in a way that God looks at you and says, yeah, that's a guy worth saving, and if you look at this passage in isolation, it's going to mess up your self-perception here because you're going to think, right, it, it does have something to do with me. And what it's going to do, it's going to give you pride. It's going to think, well, I did something to deserve God's love. But here's the thing. If, if this is the case, if you, if you look at this passage thinking that you have something to do with your salvation, with the way that God loves you, then you will be completely unable to love people the way that God calls you to love people. Your pride will get in the way every time. And so we have to remember something here. We have to remember that you were justified by the impartial judge in accordance to Christ's ransom, right? This goes back to verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, meaning that you were on the trajectory of condemnation, the futility of your forefathers, the nothingness, the meaninglessness, the meaninglessness of your forefathers. You were heading on this nothingness trajectory, but here's the deal. You were ransomed. You were brought out. You were purchased from the futile ways, not with imperishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. That's the only way that you know that you have been justified by the blood of Christ. 
Now what this is talking, what Peter's talking about right there is what theologians call justification. Now this, this thing of justification is where we are declared holy and righteous. We're declared holy and righteousness that we're accredited with Christ's righteousness because he forgave us of our sins, he cleansed us in his blood, and now that's how God views us. So that when God looks at us now, if our faith is in Christ, he does not look at what we do or what we don't do, he looks at our identity in Christ. He looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. That's our justification. Now that's why Peter can say, right, when he calls us to be holy, he's saying, be what you already are. Right? Live in your identity as God's holy people, his purified people. But now Peter's language is going to shift a little bit. It's going to move here in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, if you, like I said, if you just look at this one line here all by itself, it looks like maybe you can obey yourself into holiness, right? Having purified yourself. And it might be misleading to think that maybe, maybe this transaction with God is a 50-50 deal, right? God does 50% of the work, I do 50% of the work, and then, and then boom, I've been purified. But this is not the case. See, what Peter is talking about here is the process of sanctification. And this is the thing, this is the process that happens after we've been justified by faith in Christ. It's after you put your faith in Jesus where you are declared holy. But once you do that, is every action that you have now holy? Right? Are you now sinless in the sense that you no longer sin? No. Right? These futile ways, this former ignorance is hard to kick. And so it's like embedded in us. And so there's this process of sanctification that unearths the former ignorance, the, the futile ways that we've inherited from our forefathers, and it redirects us to live holy lives. This is where we become the beauty that we are. It's like when you go to college. You go to college, you enroll in classes, you know, you're at freshman orientation, they say, boom, you're a panther now, I went to you and I. You, you're a panther now, or, or you're a viking, or you're a leatherneck now. You're, you're part of the team. And then you spend like the next three or four or five or six years, depending how long it takes you, to like live in that identity, right? I'm a, I'm a panther, and so what do I do? I start going to classes. I start wearing the panther gear. I start going to football games and basketball games. I start being part of the student body. I start living as if I'm what I've already been declared as, a panther. It's the same idea, only with sanctification, this is a lifelong process. It's day in, day out, becoming what God has already made you. So this is what Peter is talking about when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience. Now what this text is saying, that by, by a daily giving of yourself to this process of sanctification, right, giving yourself to the process of sanctification, you are purified. That you actually are working to become what you already are. And this is happening. I can't mince words here because, because Peter says it clearly. This is happening through your obedience to the truth. Now, I assume that all of us are relatively familiar with this concept of obedience, right? A lot of us have young kids in here, so we get it. And obedience is simply this twofold process of hearing a command or an order and responding to it appropriately. Twofold process, right? So a parent lays out a command or a rule and expects their child to respond to that and conform to that appropriately. That's what obedience for a child looks like, to hear and respond appropriately. Now, you'll notice here, the type of obedience that Paul is, or Peter, not Paul, but Peter is calling us to is not an obedience to commands, rules, or regulations. Peter is calling us to live in obedience to truth, 
Now, what does that mean, to live in obedience to truth? That, that, that kind of sounds weird. He's saying here, that you are being purified when you hear the truth of the gospel and you respond to it appropriately. Right? Your soul is purified when you hear the good news of the gospel and you respond to it appropriately. This goes back to the indicatives and the imperatives. Right, The indicatives, the, the truth of what God has done for us, which leads into the imperatives, our subsequent response to those things. And so what this does, this clears up a big misconception here that, that you, this is what a lot of people think Christianity is, that if you just do holy things, if you do good things, you become a good, holy person, right? If I go to church more, if I give more, if I swear less, if I completely abstain from alcohol, if I serve more, now all of these things are an external approach to an internal condition, and it doesn't work that way. Purity comes from the inside out. That if we want to be purified, it starts with our heart and moves into our actions. So you are purified by hearing the truth of gospel. That when you hear the good news of Jesus, that it comes into your heart, it sinks down. It means something to you, not just in an intellectual manner, but it, but it stirs your affections. And out of your affections for Jesus and this good news, you live differently. But it first requires us to hear and remember the good news. You see, that's the first step to obedience. If we want to obey, we need to know what we are obeying, what the what the command is or what, it, what the truth is that we are to respond to. And this is why it's so crucial for every Christian, every Christian to be in the word on a daily basis and to be able to preach the gospel to themselves. Right? That is your responsibility as a Christian. That man does not live on bread, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the, the, the mouth of God. And to be able to, to wrap our minds around it. Even when we don't believe it, it's like you command your heart, oh my soul, rejoice in the good news. To be able to preach the gospel to ourselves. And you're probably thinking, well, Sam, that's, uh, that's what you get paid for, right? You, you get up here once a week, you come, you preach to me, you tell me the good news, and, and I'm delighted to do that. That's one of the best parts of my job. But the process of sanctification is far more in, involved than just this one-time deal of, of coming once a week and hearing the gospel. This is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment re-encountering of the gospel. So your sanctification demands for you to know the word of God, to know the good news, to, to preach it to yourself. And this is the truth that you ought to be preaching to yourself that God has poured out his love and his mercy upon you, that he has saved you from futility, and that you've been born again. You've been born into a new kingdom. You've been born into a new family where now God is your heavenly father. Now you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefilable, that compounds with glory. That you have a new DNA that you are no longer defined by your failures or successes, but you are defined by God's holiness that's imputed to you, that's given to you by Christ. You have a new family now. Right? It, the being born again, it's not just you, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not, not a, a family of four. It's, it's God in the Trinity with all the saints together, right? That's your family. That's your new family. And in this new, this new family with God as our father, with new DNA, with new identity, with new family, there is a new way to live, right? All of this is because of the mercy, the undeserved love that is poured out on you in Christ. And because all of this happens by God's love, it should be no shock to us that it happens for the purpose of love. 
Look at verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly, oops, I went too fast. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for, right there, for a sincere brotherly love. The reason you have been saved, the reason why God has put his love and his mercy upon you is for the purpose of love. That you would love the right things and that you would be more loving. Right? That's, that's the end that God is going for when he sets his love upon us that we would become lovers. Now, before being born again, your love was misplaced and impaired. Before you came to faith in Christ, your love was misplaced and impaired. Your primary love was for self. Now, this is the lie that's been floating around since the Garden of Eden, and it's the lie that our, our culture still pushes toward us, that your life is about you. It's about your happiness, your comfort, your convenience, your reputation. And what this lie does, right, this, this sin does, is it causes us to be inwardly focused. St. Augustine calls this the incurvatus insay, right? This idea that we're curved in on self. Now, I think this is, this is a good visual illustration for what it's like. That if, if I'm curved in on myself, all I can do is look at myself. I can't see you. I cannot see God. My love is primary, primarily directed to myself. And so with this posture, even your loving deeds, right, what seem to be good loving things, even your loving deeds are done out of a selfish motive. Right? You're loving in order to get a return. Right? You, you, you be a good friend to get the praises of being thoughtful or generous. Right? You go out of the way to serve your wife to get something in return, to get some free time to go to the golf course. It's, it's a selfish transactional love. And what happens when you don't get the return you want, right? When your love is inwardly focused and you're expressing these good things towards somebody else, when you don't get the return you want, what you're tempted to do either, is either cut and run or to hold out, right? You just, I'm not, well, I guess I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm just gonna stick with being selfish with my love and direct it to myself. Or I, you say, I'm gonna cut and run. I'm gonna go somewhere else where I can actually get the return that I want. And what this signifies, this is, this is an indicator that your love is impaired, that your love is broken. And actually, I would argue that it isn't, it isn't really love because love lasts through the rough patches. Love faces tough things head on. Right? This is a selfish misconception of love. This isn't real love. Now this inward bent, this selfish love isn't just the case for unbelievers though you could look and see how maybe an unbeliever would have that selfish love. But this is also prominent in, within Christians as well. That, that we tend to drift this way when we lose sight of the gospel. When we forget about God's extravagant love that's been poured out on us, we turn into this inward facing love, self-facing love. Our selfish motive, motives take over. We revert back to loving selfishly. Right, it happens in our church. It happens in all the churches. I remember a few years ago, I met with uh, the director of King's Harvest Ministries. It's a, a, a homeless um, soup kitchen shelter for um, the homeless people in our community down in Dav Davenport. And, and our, my mission community at the time was on mission down there. And so we just sat down. I was trying to figure out how we could better bless and serve this organization. And I asked them, you know, what, what's the biggest problem? What's the busy, biggest obstacle you have here? And they said, it's the turnover of volunteers. We get all kinds of church people who come in and want to do a good thing. And it's great. We love to have people come down and serve and dish up food and help with our, our overnight staff and all of those needs. We love to have that. But here's the thing that happens. People step in thinking that they're going to do a great thing for, for, for this organization. 
and they don't get the return or the acknowledgement that they're hoping to get. And after a very short amount of time, they, they peel, they leave. And she says, it's very clear that their love is not for the homeless people, the people in need in our community. Their, their love is a self-focused love. They're not getting back what they want, and so they turn around and go the other direction. Right? And it's not just other churches, friends. It happens right here in our church. We do it with people, with our friends, with our MC, with, with where we're on mission to. We do the same exact things. I think this is the reason why many of us don't like living on mission. Because living on mission is hard work. Right? If you're really living on mission, if you're giving all your love to somebody, this, this sacrificial, undeserved, continual outpouring of loving gestures and kindness, it's it's exhausting. And of course, we want to see this, this immediate return, right? We like to, like we live in the culture of instant gratification. We want to see that instant return. But God says that gospel work is like, he, there's a reason why he uses agricultural terms for it. You put a seed in the ground, it's going to take six months before you see something, right? Before you can see anything with fruit on it, with any sort of harvest. It's a long grind, and I think when we don't get that return, we're so quick to go and, and, and put our love elsewhere, to give up on this person and say, well, I, being on mission to them doesn't work. No, this, being on mission requires a lot of work. This is the reason why we flake off with our, our, our group mission. Right? We don't see the return right away, and so we're quick to give up, to go elsewhere to get some sort of a return. Now, I don't say that to negate the fact that Jesus said that there are four different types of soil, right? There's gonna be some soil that's not profitable for putting the seed in the ground, but a lot of times that even the, the, the soil that's ready to receive the word takes time to develop. See, the selfishness, I think, is what the main thing that Peter identifies as our former ignorance, right? The futile uh, ways inherited from our forefathers. Now, there were a host of things wrong with how we lived before we came to Christ. A host of things. But misplaced and impaired love is the root of every problem. And here's the thing, only the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us an adequate solution to this problem. All other attempts are futile, right? Other religions cannot succeed in this. Other ideologies, other humanitarian efforts cannot do this. Either they have, they have a flawed view of what it looks like to actually love somebody or they don't have what they need to sustain that love. Only the gospel gives us what we need. And that's because God has selflessly poured out his love upon us. And in pouring out his love upon us, he's given us a new heart. A, a new heart that isn't, ha, doesn't have this inward bent. It has, has an outward, Godward, peopleward bent. A heart that loves correctly. And it begins by reciprocating God's love back to him in thanksgiving and worship. Right, where God becomes the treasure that God becomes the thing that we supremely value and love. And last week we saw how, how this gospel gives us a love that pushes us out on mission to our not yet believing family and friends. And now Peter says that that love also influences how we see our community, how we look at our MC, how we look at our church family. And so in verse 22... Peter gives us a command. He says, having, purified, having been purified, friends, knowing the gospel. He says, having purified your souls by the obedience of the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, what he's doing here, he's speaking to fellow Christians and church members, right? He's already addressed how we love the outsiders, the people who are not yet part of their church family. Now he's saying, this is how you love your church. And this is a, a radical 
kind of love in comparison to our culture's definition. See, our culture's definition of love weakens with time. Even the idea of marriage today doesn't mean the same thing it meant 100 years ago, 80 years ago. Right? There's, there's not as much gravity to our love. That, that love has morphed into this fleeting feeling of favor rather than a disposition of steadfast companionship with others. Karen Jobes, commenter, commentator on this passage, she says that the love Peter has in view is neither a warm, fuzzy feeling nor a friendship around a coffee pot after worship, though love, as Peter defines it, may involve both. Rather, it refers to righteous relationships with each other that are based on God's character, which Christian behavior reflects. So in other words, what she's saying here is that there's a breadth to Christian love that stems right out of God's love that we have first received. And what Peter does, he lays out three descriptors of this love. He says it's a sincere brotherly love that is earnest and it comes from a pure heart. So we're gonna unpack these here. What does it mean to love sincerely? Now to define this, I think I need to start with what it doesn't mean. See, what it doesn't mean is that we love each other in sort of a a phony lip service kind of way. It's not an expression of false pretense or self-motive like we have been known to do with our former ignorance. It is not hypocritical, meaning it doesn't say one thing and do another. Which, in fact, is is actually one of the biggest objections not yet believers have to to the faith is that that Christians are hypocritical, right? They they see it in, in, well, in how they live their lives. They say, oh, you've got to be this holy and whatever. But, But really, I think one of the biggest manifestations is how they see Christians interacting with other Christians, Right, that they let love each other in sort of a, a superficial way. They see right through it. See, and many people don't give Christianity a chance because all they see is a disingenuous interaction between other believers. And if Christian love, if Christian community is marked by any of these markers, it immediately loses credibility. But you see, a love that is sincere is authentic, it is genuine, it's the real deal, it's where words, actions, and intentions all line up together. It's not just where our actions have the veneer of love, it's where our love is integrous all the way through. That everything from our thoughts, our, our intentions, our actions, our words, it's all love all the way through. So our love is sincere. But Peter says that our, our love is also to be earnest, which might sound a bit redundant, but what it does, it actually brings a new dimension to this love. It points to an intensity and thoroughness of love that even when love is strained, even when love is pushed to the limit, it continues on. See, this word earnest is what is a word that's used to describe Jesus as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane before he is crucified. The dark night where Judas has gone off to betray him, where the weight of humanity, the sins of humanity is resting upon Jesus and he knows that the cross is coming and he is in prayer with the Father saying, Father, would you, would you remove this cup from me if it be your will? But if not, I'll take it. This earnestness is what, what Jesus pleaded with Right, to the last hour, to the point where he had, had drops of blood. He was sweating drops of blood. This sort of this stick to it, stick to itiveness, stick to itiveness that needs to be embodied with our Christian love. Right? This means that Christians go 12 rounds with one another. Right? We go the whole distance. We stick with each other all the way to the end. That, that we have this intensity of love that can sustain us through the the length, the time domain. And finally, Peter says that all of this, this sincere, earnest love comes from a pure 
heart. And we've already talked about this. The way to get a pure heart is not by doing holy things, right? The way to get a pure heart is to come to faith in the gospel. To be centered on the gospel. That means that our motive doesn't come from within us, right? That our motive, as, as Ed Clowney says, is grounded in what God has done for us already. How he has loved us. That we love because he has first loved us. And, and this love that we've been loved with is not a, a love that just leaves you in the same place. It's, it's a love that transforms. It moves you from one degree of glory to the next, from one degree of Christ-likeness to the next. So we're not loving in order to gain. See, our motive, is not, our motive to love is not to gain something. That we love regardless of return or reciprocation because God has loved us regardless of how we respond. Now, the sincere, earnest, brotherly love from a pure heart, this all sounds good in theory, right? But love is not theoretical. Real love has manifestations that are incredibly practical, right? I can't just say that I love my wife. I have to, to show her that I love her in word and in deed, right? I, I did the dishes twice this week, guys. I hate doing the dishes. I show her that I love her in word and deed. So what I want to do, I want to flush this out. What does it practically look like to love our church family? And I think one of the places that we need to start is to realize that we are living in pretty divided times. Politically, our culture has never been more divided. The left has never seemed further away from the right, and vice versa. Yet we live in a city and a region that is relatively evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. Right? I'm pretty sure Scott County voted for Trump. I'm pretty sure uh, Rock Island County voted for Hillary. Right, that's just across the river. You know what that means? That means that the likelihood of somebody having a different political view than you in your MC is very likely. Right? There's bound to be someone in your mission community that doesn't see politics the same way that you see them. And so the question is, like, what, what does it look, to love, look like to love that person? And what I, I know is true, that Christian love is more than just cooperation and, and, and tolerance. It's more than just this uh, effort for bipartisan politics. See, Christian love for your brother or sister who has a different political view than you is sincere. It's not hypocritical. It's not withholding. It's a love that looks past all your big differences including your political affiliations, and it looks at the most important thing that you have in common with that person, and that is that you are a sinner saved by God's grace, both of you. And that thought is unifying, right? That doesn't cause division to know that that person, regardless of how they see the world, that person is unified with me because they're a sinner just like me, and Christ has redeemed them. But here's the thing, I think that is troubling a lot of Christians today is that we are more in sync with our political affiliations than we are with our brother or sister in Christ who sees things differently than us. If that's the case, we are in error. We are not loving well. We are not loving sincerely. To love a political idea more than a flesh and blood human right next to you? This is how the gospel shapes our, our, our politics. Now, this doesn't mean that, that the topic of politics is off the table, right? This is not like the old social rule that you can't talk about religion or politics or, or we just ignore our differences. That, that would be phony love. That would not be, be sincere love. But a sincere love allows us to graciously listen to one another, to dialogue, to interact with one another. But it also requires for us to seek correction. See, Republicans are not right. Democrats are not right. 
Like neither one of those are completely Christian worldviews. And so both of us need to come to the gospel and say, God, show us where our worldview is off. Show us what it looks like to live in line with the gospel. See, and this has to be done in the context of community, right? This has to be done with an expression of sincere love. Otherwise, it's going to end in rivals and feuds and division. See, another thing that happens where, where we really need to live out this love is when, when you get hurt by someone in your MC. Right, someone either sins against you intentionally or unintentionally, and you get hurt by it. Or, or maybe, maybe they don't sin against you, they just, you just take offense to what they said. Now, in these times when we feel hurt, there is this temptation for us to walk away. Right, when somebody uh, attempts to lovingly speak hard truth to you and, and probably they do it imperfectly and now you're hurt and offended, right? you, you just want to take your ball and go play somewhere else. You wonder if this relational strange, wonder if, wonder if it's reconcilable. And you see that, that this kind of love takes work. And so you see the easiest option is for me to just take my ball and go, to, to go somewhere else to leave the community, to avoid them, to avoid the situation. You see, but the type of love that Peter is calling us to is an enduring love, a love that sticks it out together, a love that strives for unity, a love that speaks earnestly, right, to give you the license to say, friend, you hurt me. Your words, your actions offended me, they hurt me, but it also gives the other person a chance to repent if they are in sin. But if that person did not actually sin against you, you just feel offended, this kind of love gives you the ability to forbear, right? That you can just kind of own it up. You can bear that yourself. You can forgive them because you've been forgiven with such a gracious love, right? This is how the gospel informs the community that sticks together. Here's another way. That when times are tough, we have somebody in our MC that's, that's facing difficult times, Right, maybe they lost a job, they've run into hard financial times, there's been a death in the family. In brotherly love, we gather around that person to bear the load together. We rally together to meet their critical needs, to help them out. Whether it's physical or emotional, this means that we gladly sacrifice for another. Now, this is actually one of the main distinctions here of the early church. That when people, I mean, we're talking gospel revival. People just coming to faith left and right. People saying, I'm gonna live all in for Jesus. And here in Acts 2.42, this is, this is how the church is, is marked. They say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And check this out. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See, this is how the how a gospel community lives, right? It's not just for the good of me and my, my blood family, it's for the good of, of my whole family, my gospel family. Now this doesn't mean that we take advantage of our brothers and sisters, right? What we slough off our responsibilities to work hard and, and, and to live a life that's faithful to what God has called us to. It doesn't mean we take advantage of them because that in itself is unloving to just continually going need after need after need without contributing anything back to the community, that is unloving. But what this does mean is it gives us the ability to check our ego at the door and ask for help when we need it, whether it's financially, in a physical sense, or, or emotionally. Like, I've got some soul issues that I would like your help to process through. We come to our community for help. And so we contribute to one another when we have the resources to help out, especially, especially with the people in our MC. Now our love, 
our love for our MC, our love for our family, our church family, should be directed by this question. What would I do if this person were actually my brother or sister? What would I do? How would I live? How would I love this person if they were actually my blood brother or sister? Now, what they say is that, that this bond between brother and sister behind you know, parent-child relationship is the strongest bond on earth. Right, it makes sense because if you're like me, you and your siblings are probably polar opposites. There's things that are significantly different about you. You see things differently, but there's still this reflex to help that person out whenever they're in need, right? There's this internal reflex, oh, that's my brother, I'm gonna help them out, or that's my sister, I'm gonna love them, I'm gonna meet their needs in whatever ways that I can. Now, the reason why this question is such a good question for us to ask as as an MC family, as a gospel family, is because if that person is in Christ like you, they are your brother and sister in Christ. That they are your spiritual family. They are your gospel family. And this sort of question doesn't just apply for the church as, as sort of the people who are Christians already, but for the people who are on mission too. How would I love this person? How would I treat this person if they were my brother and sister, because your desire as someone who's living on mission to that person is that they would be born again by the Spirit of God to see God as their Father and that you become part, that they become part of your gospel family as well. See, that's why Peter here talks of a brotherly love. This isn't metaphorical. This is pretty literal a brotherly love, a sincere and earnest love from a pure heart. And in verse, verse 32, if you jump back to 1 Peter, he says the reason for this, the reason why you love from a pure heart with sincere and earnest love is because or since you have been born again. And when he says since you, he's not talking an individualistic like you as an individual. He's talking about you as a corporate body. That the whole of God's people has been born again. That we have been born again into a family. Now we have brothers and sisters. It's a plural you. There is a commonality here between you and the people in your MC that you have been born again by the Spirit of God. So the reason why you love your MC like family, why you love your MC like brothers and sisters is because you are brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this is, this is why Peter makes a distinction between the perishable seed and the imperishable seed. He says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Right, this distinction is showing us a distinction between our blood family and our spiritual family. And what he does is he quotes Isaiah 40 here. Peter says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, family, blood family has a glory, right? Right? Just like a flower has a glory, you go and you look at it in season, it's beautiful, it smells great, a beautiful aroma, but eventually here, that flower is going to die. Flesh will fade away. So if you are connected to a family purely based upon the flesh, based upon a blood relation, that flesh will one day perish. but he's saying that there is an imperishable seed that will last for eternity, that will go on forever, and that imperishable seed is the word of God, that's the good news that was preached to you. So this distinction between imperishable and the perishable seed, what's that all about, right? The the blood family and the family of God. And what this means is that your church family will be with you for eternity, From this point forward, the people in your MC who profess faith in Christ, you will be with them for eternity. This is a theme that Peter's gonna pick up as we move on through chapter two. 
But this is not necessarily the case for your blood family. If the only way that you relate to your blood family is through flesh, through, through fresh flesh and blood, but if your family is united in their profession that Jesus Christ has ransomed them from the futile ways, that family, that blood family will also be your family for eternity as well. Parents, this is why we disciple our children. We want to raise them up into the salvation of the Lord. If you have, if you have family members who don't know Jesus, this is why Jesus has sent you back on mission to them. So that they, you wouldn't just relate to them through fr- flesh and blood, that you would relate to them through the imperishable word of God. This is a call for mission. That we pray for them, that we share the word of God with them, that we live on mission, that our family would know Jesus. See, by highlighting the imperishable and perishable seed, Peter is saying that the way that you love the church family carries on into eternity. Right? What happens here is that the imperishable word of God, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, creates an imperishable family. Do you hear that? The imperishable gospel creates an imperishable family. Now this is a foretaste of the sweetness of heaven. Right, this exchange of brotherly love that we have with other Christians, this is a picture of what heaven is gonna be like. And here's the thing, this kind of love is so attractive to a world that is fed up with phony love. Right, because at the same time that there's all other kinds of definitions of love in our culture, People are sick of phony love. They're looking for the real deal. And so to look at the church and to see Christians loving each other earnestly, sincerely, is so appealing. This is why the gospel creates culture and, or creates a community, and that community is perhaps one of the strongest apologetics for the gospel. It shows the power of the gospel. Because here's the deal. That person in your MC that, that drives you crazy Right, the person in your MC that you're just tired of hearing the same things come up over and over again, them struggling in the same way because they're making silly decisions. The way that you love them earnestly and sincerely shows that the supernatural love of God is what's influencing your love for that person. See, what this does, the way that we love our community points to the sincere and enduring love that flows from Christ's pure heart. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. See, in this sense, that Jesus is our big brother. He's our big brother who loves us sincerely. He loves us earnestly from a pure heart. He lays down his life for us. See, our big brother Jesus was willing to meet our deepest needs by going to the cross on our behalf to pardon our sins, to bring us into the depths of God's love and to teach us how to live a new life, a a life that is full of love. See, this is the good news of the gospel, that he has redeemed us from our futile ways of selfish-focused love and he's reoriented us to love God and those we're on mission to and our church family with an earnest, sincere, brotherly love from a pure heart. So now, we come to the table this morning in remembrance of that love that God has shown us. We come to the table not for some sort of individualistic, quick bite to eat. This is a community meal. This is a family meal. Right, together we come to the altar and we take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was broken and shed for our sins. Not just me individually, but for us corporately. I look down the aisle and I see that is a brother that Jesus has redeemed. That is a sister that Jesus has redeemed. And so when we take this meal, what we do is we two things. One, we, we observe Christ's radical love for us that he would go to the cross on our behalf. 
But this is also a participation in that life. That in coming to the table, we are vowing to love our brothers and sisters in the way that Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you've radically loved us, that you have poured out grace upon grace, that we would know you through your son, that, that really, that's the only way that we can know you. That's the only way that we can know the depths of your love is through the radical love and sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, our big brother, Jesus. We thank you that in, in giving us a new heart and cleansing us and purifying us in the gospel, that you bring us into a family where you are our father, that you give us new DNA, that you give us a family, brothers and sisters, to share this love that you have for us. So Father, would you teach us to love well? Would you, would you free us from selfish loving? Would you allow us to give sacrificially to one another, to forbear, to be sincere and earnest, to, to be loving from a pure heart? And in that would we thrive, Father, and in our thriving would we rejoice and find deep joy in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.